Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 8 of The Grand Scheme of Things, where we try to get an idea of what science can tell us about our place in the universe, how we got here, and maybe where we're going. I'm your tour guide on this little tour, and my name is Bill McKim. Just a reminder that you can get a copy of the transcript of any of these episodes by emailing me, Bill McKim. My email address is tgst at bell.net. That stands for the grand scheme of things. What else? At bell.net. If you want to find out more about any of this stuff I'm talking about, there's a lot of readily accessible and understandable material on the web. I highly recommend you start with Wikipedia. In episode 6, we went from the Big Bang to the formation of our planet, Earth, which took about 10 billion years. And then to the appearance of self-replicating molecules on our planet, which, with the aid of a bit of replication, variation, and natural selection, encased themselves in a liquid membrane and became self-replicating cells, a process that took another billion years. These cells originally had no nucleus, and we called them prokaryotes. They're still around, only now we call them bacteria. Later, much later, about 1.8 billion years ago, some of these cells evolved a nucleus and internal organelles and other metabolic mechanisms, and we call this type of cell a eukaryote. Eukaryotes are still here too, mostly in the form of single-celled organisms, but they are also what most living things are made of, including you. These single-celled organisms did not float around separately in the vast primordial sea. Many joined with other cells in colonies and formed large mats along with the carbon they excreted. We uh, can still see these fossilized remains of these mats called stromatolites, which I told you about in episode 6. These mats were colonies of cells. Each cell was identical to every other and none had any special functions. They were not multicelled organisms like us, or dinosaurs, or worms. That stage was yet to come. It took about another half billion years. In that time, the most advanced eukaryotes to evolve were algae, or simple-celled simple cells called protozoa. But there's a growing body of evidence that there were numerous instances of early attempts to evolve into multicellular organisms. We will get to that soon, but there's one major development in eukaryote cells that happened about a, a billion years ago that might interest you. Sex. Yes, sexual reproduction was invented by eukaryotes, and it's been around for over a billion years. It's been used by the vast majority of living things ever since. I like to think of it this way. Just imagine about a billion years ago, in a warm, sunny afternoon on the, in the primordial oceans, the eukaryotes had nothing much to do. One suggested to another, Hmm, I'm tired of reproducing myself by dividing over and over again. Why don't we get together and do it in pairs so we can share our genes? And they invented sex, and the practice caught on big time. Well, of course, it didn't happen that way. Sexual reproduction involves special processes that must have taken millions of years to get right. 
Two cells needed to be able to come together without eating each other, uh, no pun intended. Their genetic material needed to fuse so that it contained genes from both parent cells, and then these cells needed to divide again with each daughter cell containing the genes of both parents. Up until sexual reproduction came along, cells multiplied simply by dividing, and each new cell was genetically similar to all the others. That is to say, they were clones, and there was not much variability between individuals in a species. Now recall that evolution needs three elements, reproduction, variation, and selection. Well, clones have very little variability between themselves. As a result, the process of natural selection had very little work, very little to work with. The speed of evolutionary change was relatively slow. But when two different organisms became involved in the process of reproduction, each new offspring had two sets of genes, one from mom and the other from dad. This meant that there was increased variability between members of the same species and natural selection had more to work with. This meant that species could respond faster to changes in the environment and competition from other species and new diseases and predators and obtaining food and other energy sources. Sexual reproduction turned out to be a great success and evolved and endowed a huge evolutionary advantage on a species. Now, just about everybody does it except for prokaryotes, which rely on other mechanisms for sharing genes with their friends. In any case, because they don't need to bother finding a partner, prokaryotes produce pretty darn fast anyway. As I was saying earlier, for billions of years, life consisted of single-celled organisms. Then, about 650 million years ago, in a period called the Cambrian, the eukaryotes appeared to have undergone an evolutionary explosion. The fossil record shows that suddenly, within the space of about 100 million years, and that's pretty fast by these standards, in the space of about 100 million years, these single-celled organisms that had lived in isolation or simple colonies learned to diversify and take on different functions so that they could be part of a multi-celled organism. These fossils showed early forms of many plants and animals that are familiar to us today and could have evolved into virtually all the major phyla of modern animals and plants, including us, and many more that are no longer with us. Now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that the emergence of complex multi-celled creatures was instantaneous. In fact, it was not. But for a long time, scientists believed that it was rather sudden because they had no clear evidence of earlier complex organisms. In fact, the sudden appearance of fossils of complex multi-celled plants uh, and animals in the rocks from the Cambrian period disturbed Darwin greatly because According to his theory of evolution, there should have been a long period where simpler creatures would have had time to evolve into complex forms. Darwin actually said in the sixth edition of The Origin of Species, 
To the question of why we do not find rich fossiliferous deposits belonging to these assumed earliest periods prior to the Cambrian, I can give no satisfactory answer. In fact, evolution had been experimenting with multicelled creatures for millions of years. It's just that the fossil record was not so obvious in Darwin's day. The animals and plants that showed up in the Cambrian had hard tissue like shells and armor and pincers and things like that that could readily be preserved. But the earlier creatures were all soft-bodied. Consequently, the fossil record we have to go on is very little more than shadows and faint impressions that appear to show multicelled organisms with many peculiar shapes. Geologists in Darwin's day could be forgiven for not recognizing what they were. Even today, it's hard to determine whether these traces were colonies of identical eukaryote cells or whether they were functioning multicelled organisms like the Cambrian flora and fauna. Nevertheless, it is clear that there were many complex creatures that haunted the Precambrian ocean. These have been found all over the world, some known as Ediacaran biota, named after the Ediacara Hills of South Australia, where they were discovered. They were as old as 650 million years. That's 80 million years before the Cambrian explosion. Similar fossils discovered not long ago at Mistaken Point on the Avalon Peninsula of Newfoundland are 575 million years old. Even if there was a long history of multicellular development that Darwin did not know about, the Cambrian was a period of exceptionally rapid development of animals and plants that were clearly ancestors to modern plants and animals. Considering that the preceding three billion years had produced little more than bacteria, algae, and sponges. What caused this explosion of biodiversity? Many people think it was a result of a rather drastic climate change, a period of time known as the Cryogenian period. It is now widely accepted that for a period of over 100 million years, ending about 635 million years ago, that's about 20 million years before the Cambrian explosion, the Earth virtually turned into a snowball. A shortage of greenhouse gases, the location of continents, and a weak sun all worked together to cause an ice age to happen. But this was no ordinary ice age. The entire Earth, oceans and all, became covered with ice, a state referred to as Snowball Earth. Because the ice and snow reflected the sun's heat back into space, the sun could not heat the atmosphere and things got colder and colder and whiter and whiter and so on. Eventually, however, carbon dioxide gas released from volcanoes accumulated to about 350 times today's concentration, and this created enough of a greenhouse effect to begin melting all that ice. As the ice melted, the sun's heat was not reflected back into space and it became trapped by all that carbon dioxide. Things became very hot. Within a few hundred years, the snowball had become a hothouse. The temperature of the oceans would have changed from minus 50 Celsius, with a covering of ice a kilometer thick, to plus 50 Celsius, 
It is thought that this cycle of snowball hothouse, sometimes called the freeze-fry cycle, repeated itself a number of times during this cryogenian period. This cycle of freezing and then sudden frying must have created very hostile conditions for life. In fact, many scientists did not believe in the snowball earth theory because they felt that no form of life could have survived it. But that was before they knew how tough life could be. Not long ago, to everyone's surprise, biologists found bacteria living in the boiling waters of geothermal vents on the ocean floor. It is now thought that single-celled life could have survived in such places throughout the duration of the cryogenian period. Hot springs on land might also have provided a refuge for living organisms. We also have found single-celled microbes in the ice of glaciers in Antarctica, in Antarctica, a habitat that must resemble to some extent the conditions on snowball earth. Another school of thought suggests that perhaps the freezing of the earth was not quite as drastic as I have described, and the earth might have been called a slushball earth rather than a snowball earth. In any case, life made it through the cryogenian, and shortly thereafter, the Yeti acre in Biota and the Cambrian explosion took place. Many suggest that this leap forward in evolution was spurred on by tough times. The ice sheets of Snowball Earth reduced life to a number of isolated sites varying greatly in conditions, thus causing evolution to move in radically different directions in different places. The next development of note in the story of your life was many millions of years later when the descendants of those multi-celled complex organisms from the Cambrian period, your ancestors in fact, left the ocean and populated dry land. Why and how did they leave the oceans and become land dwellers? Which ones made the leap? Well, let's start off with plants. Well, plants were way ahead of animals when it came to living, leaving the oceans. There is evidence that there were cyanobacteria in freshwater lakes a billion years ago, and multicellular eukaryotes that used photosynthesis were living on land 850 million years ago, well before the Cambrian period. But it would, have be, it would be a long time before animals crawled out of the water. That appeared to happen about 500 billion years later. The first evidence of animals on land was footprints fossilized in a layer of sandstone found in an abandoned quarry near Kingston, Ontario, in Canada. They appear to have been made by a strange animal that was segmented and armored, had eight legs, and maybe was a foot long. It may have been some sort of bug. The name given these critters was euthycarinoids. Youth, That's easy for you to say. They were the ancestors of the now extinct trilobites, and of modern creatures such as scorpions, spiders, shrimps, and other crustaceans, but not us. Our earliest common ancestor to leave the oceans was a fish, and it happened sometime between 360 and 390 million years ago. We now know it was a fish 
because we can trace the development of fish-like features to human-like features. First, we have a backbone, and so do fish. We can see how fins became limbs and gills became lungs. Clearly, fish was the earliest common ancestor of all tetrapods, that is, all four-legged creatures, including us. Okay, so we have only two legs. Uh, but that was a long time ago. We had four. Snakes have no legs at all, and they're still tetrapods too. It's just that they have hidden the vestigial remains of their legs inside their bodies. So we don't see them, unless we look in the right place. Now, it was not just any fish that evolved into tetrapods. Most fish are ray-finned, and their fins are supported by an array of slender bones. We descended from what are called lobe-finned fish, which are not at all common today. One, the coelacanth fish, was thought to be extinct, but it was rediscovered amid a great excitement in the 1930s. Lobe-finned fish have just that. They have very large, bony, muscular fins, just what you need to evolve into legs. It also appears as though legs did not evolve for walking on dry land, like you might expect. Early tetrapods evolved in the Devonian period, when the earth was covered with a dense forest of ferns and other vegetation, and it also had a lot of swamps. This required the ability to swim, but also the ability to crawl over fallen trees and through dense bushes to find food and escape predation. Those lobe fins must have come in handy in an environment like that. And they turned into jointed legs tipped by five-fingered claws. One line of tetrapods evolved into crocodiles and turtles and amphibians, and they never left the swamp, but that was not us. Another line of tetrapods' descendants became dinosaurs who ruled the earth for a very long time. Only one branch of dinosaur survived, and they became birds. But that was not us either. A third group also took advantage of their legs and left the swamp. These evolved into us mammals. One of the earliest mammalian ancestors from this time was a tiny rat-like creature called Megazastrodon. It was covered with hair, was warm-blooded, and suckled its young. Mammals remained an insignificant class of animals until the extinction of the dinosaurs about 65 million years ago. This was precipitated by another catastrophe, a meteorite striking the Earth. This, together with other ongoing climatic changes, altered the environment of the Earth so severely that the dinosaurs could not survive, and evolution took another turn. Removal of the dinosaurs gave the mammals an opening, which they took. And we will take up the story of mammals to human beings in the next episode of The Grand Scheme of Things. That's episode 9. But before I part with you, I want to say a word or two about mass extinctions. I just told you about the extinction of the dinosaurs, and earlier I told you about Snowball Earth and the drastic series of freezing and thawing that took place just before the evolution of multicelled organisms and the Cambrian explosion. It turns out 
that there have been a number of these extinction extinctions between Snowball Earth and the loss of the dinosaurs, at least five, and possibly as many as ten, depending upon your criteria for what an extinction event is. It is difficult to know exactly what caused each one, but there were probably several factors contributing. Many factors have been proposed to have caused an extinction event. These include increased geological activity, such as volcanoes, which released into the atmosphere such stuff as poisonous gases, and dust and particles that block sunlight, and increased global warming. Falls in sea level Falls in sea level are frequently cited because this would change the nature of the continental shelves and the shallow water near land where most marine species inhabit. Impact events. When the earth is struck by a large meteor or comet, this would have an effect similar to the increased volcanic activity by releasing dust and gases that block sunlight, etc. Other suggestions include drops in oxygen levels in the atmosphere, biologically produced increases in levels of hydrogen sulfide, gamma ray bursts caused by a supernova or a nova and nearby stars, geomagnetic reversals of Earth's magnetic field, and the position of Earth's continents due to the movement of plate tectonics. As you can see, life on Earth is vulnerable to a thousand natural shocks that can be biological game changers. It has been speculated that any extinction is likely due to at least two of these events occurring at the same time. One is likely to have been a chronic stressor to a species in a particular environment, and the other a sudden change. Together, they damage the environment of a large number of species, which eventually became unable to reproduce and became extinct. But there are always many species that are minimally affected and have no trouble surviving. They are now left with the opportunity of moving into the new environmental niches, which they always do. Creatures that are able to do this appear to explode in numbers and in new species in the fossil record as they take advantage of the new environment. That's why it's been suggested that hard times stimulate evolution. It seems to be true for evolution, at least. What does not kill us makes us stronger, or at least different, usually more complicated. That's from an evolutionary point of view. If environments do not change, the only pressure to evolve comes from other species, finding food, avoiding predators, so it is not surprising that the addition of drastic climate change and the destruction of many species can stimulate the evolutionary process and create new sets of species that will compete with each other and to take advantage over the new rules and the new playing field. As usual, I urge you, if you want to know more about something, go to Wikipedia. In this case, search under Extinction Event. There is one more thing about evolution that I want you to keep in mind, and that is that evolution prepares an organism to live in the past, not the future. It is the environment that selects which genes survive into the next generation. 
Thus, our bodies are selected to be able to survive in past conditions. When conditions change, genes may not be able to build an organism that can survive. Think, think of it the way Richard Dawkins described in his wonderful book, The Selfish Gene. One of these days, I think I might do a podcast devoted to the selfish gene. Dawkins explained that nature selects for survival, not of a species or an organism, but of the gene. In order to survive, the genes as a whole must be able to build an organism that can survive in its environment. Not only that, the organism must pass its genes on to the next generation, which must do the same. If genes do not do that, they do not survive. From this point of view, when a gene builds a body, it is building a survival machine. You exist and are created the way you are as a tool to get each of your genes into the next generation. That's what the first self-replicating molecule did, and that's what's been going on without a pause for three and a half, maybe four billion years. Before too long, I hope in another episode I'll be able to talk more about Dawkins. He's much to tell us about the nature of evolution. All right, I hear the banjo player reminding us that we should not spend too much of our time on this earth making and listening to podcasts, no matter how excellent they may be. So, watch out for episode 9, and I will finish the story of you. With any luck, we can get to modern humans, which is... I'm assuming what you are.